Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the chair in front of you. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, let's start with a prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to us, grant to all of us, that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts. To your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning again. We are on the final chapter to this first letter to the Corinthians. This has been quite the journey for us and our church. And this is the chapter after the summit of chapter 15. The pinnacle. The peak. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? After singing that kind of victory song, perhaps you might have thought it's compulsory then to take a victory lap. And indeed, this is the culmination and crowning chapter that sums up all of 1 Corinthians. You know, I think it's important for us to remember that Paul just talked about the resurrection. He talked about our resurrected and glorified bodies. He talked about how these bodies will undergo a supernatural transformation ordained by God. One day our bodies will be like the glorified body of Jesus Christ. When that last trump sounds, the reality for the believer will be something where we recognize that our souls, it's something that we recognize is what our souls have truly longed for, what we have been made together, and the reality of all that coming together. That's the resurrection. And the mystery revealed to us is that it will happen in a twinkle of an eye, what we couldn't have even imagined, what writers and artists throughout history Musicians, composers throughout history have painstakingly tried to just simply portray an infinitesimally small amount of that glory. We would have that in full through our Lord Jesus Christ. And after spending weeks on that chapter, we come to today. And this one, where it says, now concerning the collection now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. Maybe Paul was a funny guy. 
We've seen that he employed all kinds of teaching mechanisms, including gentleness. He was soft-spoken, encouraging, and tender at times. But there was also beration, where he would condemn the actions of letting go and even celebrating sin within the church. And we've even gone over sarcasm, where he would even say, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if, you, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. I think that's funny. I don't know about you. Because imagine speaking unintelligible sounds into the air. Anyway, but imagine that. And so I think that like he, he could be kind of funny. But after the most monumental chapter of the letter, he starts this next topic, now concerning the collection. That's the money collection. And some of you may be visiting. I was praying for uh, this week's worship service, and I knew that we might have visitors, and you might be thinking now you came on the wrong week. Maybe you're visiting from another church and your pastor preaching in your church was preaching on uh, giving, and you could escape by coming here. I don't know. But, you know, bottom line is you can't slip one by God, you know. But after the chapter of the resurrection grandeur of tomorrow, the very next verse brings us right back down to today. And today, this is what we'll talk about. And this kind of principle is what we've been going over and talking about week in and week out we understand that doctrine informs your application. Your theology informs your actions. But to look at it from another point of view, the grandiose and the mundane are always intertwined. No one wins a marathon without training day in and day out. There is no victory lap without the countless laps of training and competition that come before it. You know, I told this story once, but I went to missions in Japan. And um, all these church leaders from these huge mega churches to these great para ministries, they were gathered. And um, we were going to all, all the leaders gathered together. And we had lunch, and we decided to go around the table and share what the great vision of God was for us and, you know, how we are going to live that out. So all these people went, and, you know, they had all these visions, and it was, it was truly grandiose. And then it came to my turn. It's like, Eugene, what are you excited about? What is God giving you vision to do? And uh, I responded, uh, I'm very excited about the mundane. And I think people thought I was being a little facetious, right? They thought I was being, you know, a little jokester. But I was really serious. And with each person, I remember they would just go, wow, that's such a great vision. We'll pray for it. We'll hope that happens. There will be this revival wave that goes through Europe and all that stuff. And I, when I said, I'm really excited about the mundane. I said, oh, th that's great. Okay, let's move on to the next person. But I really am excited about the mundane. 
when you truly understand what it takes to not just win marathons, but what it takes to be sanctified and glorified, the true purpose of humanity, the mundane, should excite you because what's to come is that amazing. Perhaps one day I'll do a sermon series on biblical giving, but this is, I think, my second or third time ever giving a sermon on giving. I told my pastor friend, because he and I were talking about giving sermons this week, he, he was asking me what I'd preach on after we shared a little. I said, oh, I'm, we're, I'm, we're in 1 Corinthians and we're in the portion where it's talking about giving and the collection. He said, oh, how many times have you done it? I was like, I don't know, maybe two or three. And to that, he gasped. <laughs> like, but uh, don't get me wrong, you know. It's not because I don't think giving is important. I think it's absolutely important. Because where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, where is your treasure? If you ever had trouble discerning where your heart was, or whether your heart was for the temporal things of this world, or the eternal things to come, Look for where your heart is. What gets you excited? What do you naturally gravitate toward? Where do your eyes go as soon as you wake up? What do you find attractive? Answer these questions and you will start to see and realize that's where you're storing your treasure. One marketing trick that brokerage firms and companies use today is they want you to download their app, they want you to sign up with their firm because once, they, once you do, they'll give you this free stock. They'll give you a free stock once you sign up with their firm. But what that free stock actually does, it, it, it causes you to check the stock. It causes you to look at it and wonder about why it went up or why it went down. And then you start to invest in it. You see, if you tell me what your heart gravitates toward, I can tell where you spend your money. And in regard to investing or storing, this is important because Christ says to himself, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, you keep on spending money on only on things that are temporal. And there is a problem with that. So there is a correlation between the final resurrected body, the final glorified body, and what you are doing here and now to store up for that eternal reality. I'm going to give you some background here. Ancient Greece, like every other time in history, had problems of poverty. And so if you were a Greek, there were associations or clubs called the Eranoi. Paul likely had them in mind when we went over chapter 11, when people would come to these feasts and the Lord's Supper and just eat on their own without sharing. So, Aranoi is where if you were poor, you could attend these club feasts 
and share in the food that other people would also bring. It's like a potluck, but not really, because you couldn't just go up and stand on line like a buffet line, but it would be distributed like we saw in chapter 11. And many times what would happen is the rich would eat their lion's share in the meal, and the poor would get very little. And no one could say boo because the poor didn't bring much anyway. So they would say, just be happy with what you got because otherwise you'd be starving, right? And so Paul would unload on the Corinthians for doing the exact same thing in chapter 11 and then calling it the Lord's Supper because they were mimicking the Greeks and showing that kind of bias. And some people will look at passages like this or when Jesus would distribute food to the 5,000 and say that is a case for some kind of Marxist ideology. Marxism named after Karl Marx, who also happened to be vehemently anti-Christian, is nothing. Marxism is nothing like Christian giving and sharing. I'm going to say it again. Marxism is nothing like Christian giving and sharing. Marxism is an over-realized eschatology with an under-realization of human depravity. Instead of recognizing the poor as individuals that are in a state of need, Marxism and the like ideologies put the poor in this group. And you get taught in school, the poor this and the poor that. Never, never, here is my neighbor, Mr. Bean. Mr. Bean needs our help. It's how do we eradicate the group, the poor, so that there are no more people inside this group. Eventually, you come up with these ideas and you, and you spread things like critical theory, which isn't critical, it just criticizes. It's not critical at all. And the only solution that you have left is what we are seeing pervade here, pervasive here now, is that these solutions, which are really non-solutions, it's like, it's all the rich people's fault or it's the complacent people's fault or it's the other person's fault, never my own fault because look how hard I'm criticizing these other people. And so we've come to a place where even in our highest institutions like Harvard Law, they are teaching their students about demolishing democracy. An over-realized eschatology means that Marxists believe that the only way to achieve utopia then it's to burn everything to the ground. And that's how every, got to listen to this, that's how every socialist communist regime has come to power. And that's how they have also ended, by everything going down in flames, along with the people in that nation state. You will never, you will never ever have or achieve utopia here, never. This is why I think America is so special. Its founder, founders recognize this. Number one, they recognize that you will never have utopia here and that people are depraved. You need to separate powers. You need these systems of government that will legislate, execute, and interpret laws, and that will put the reins on human sinfulness. And on a side note, I would say that some of you think that I love America like a lot. This is true, but I find that it's such a weird thing to think. It's like, I've noticed, Pastor Eugene, you like America a lot. And I find that statement so weird 
No one would blink twice if a Korean guy would say that he loved Korea. Or if a Norwegian guy would boast about the fjords, come to our fjords, right? Now, like, no one would think that's weird. But an American stating that, hey, America has some good things, terrible. You know, don't say stuff like that. And we live in such an interesting time and in such an interesting place, don't we? So as a Christian, when we see something biblical and good, we should say so as much. And when we see something corrupt, we should say so as much as well. The point is that biblical principles are our norm, not some kooky Marxist theology that says every white person is racist and therefore this country must burn. That is insanity and that is evil. What an evil thing to say. And this is what I'm also encouraged by when I, as your pastor, see change in each of you, week in and week out. Listening to the Word and having the Holy Spirit shape and mold us, that's such a beautiful picture I have been able to witness by God's grace. So it's not some worldly ideology that shapes our thoughts and emotions, but rather it is the Word of God, every single part of it, every single dot, tittle, word shapes us, which is what I hope you also get to hear in our podcasts, which are resuming next week. Our nation and world today is struggling with how to help the poor. Likewise, the Greeks were struggling as well with the Aranoi. The Jews also struggled with helping the poor. In their synagogues, a Jewish person could apply for aid to an official of that synagogue and then receive some of that aid that was earmarked for the poor. Our secular societies in the world today do their best to give aid to those that are in need. And that means the church must then do no less than what society is doing to take care of her own. In our current day, government and nonprofits do a lot to a point where I think it's a little bit ridiculous now. If there is one minute need, immediately you'll see a nonprofit spring up. You know, Asians that don't have enough noodles in their diet, and then you have this nonprofits that's called Asians Need Their Noodles. I don't know. Uh, this one isn't a joke. This one is real. Uh, you can adopt a donkey. For only about $5 a month, you can help feed donkeys around the world. There are also scams like the Kids Wish Network. They rake in millions of dollars every year. One year I, I saw it was recorded that they brought in over $100 million, and it's estimated that they give around $0.03 cents per dollar to an actual kid. The rest goes to themselves. While I can go on about government support or nonprofits, I'm afraid that the church can also often be too hesitant when it comes to supplying its own needs or the needs of its members. We are in a place where the government does provide help and need for people, albeit while taxing a third of all our incomes, but it does provide help and need for people. But people taking advantage of that isn't a bad thing, right? 
However, the church must recognize that the needs that the government cannot provide for, the church is there because those needs are still many and they are broad. In the time of the apostles, the church in Jerusalem was brought into a deep state of poverty. What kind of state and how deep it was, we don't actually know. It could have been because of persecution. Um, it could have been because in Acts 2, they just sold everything and they shared everything and they had nothing left. There was no more things to sell. It could have been. But I don't think that's really a plausible reason. It's very likely that the Christians in Jerusalem were going through some kind of intense persecution. Not all that different from what we see the Christians in Afghanistan and in China and in North Korea facing. And so after Pentecost, scholars have drawn up the scenario where, remember in Pentecost there were over 3,000 people that were added to the church. They never left. So those 3,000 people never left. So, I mean, how can you go back to your homes when the breaking of the bread, the prayers, the fellowship, and the apostles' teaching was there in Jerusalem? How can you go back when that was in the church and the church was in Jerusalem? So they didn't go back. And so there were all these people who had jobs that let go of their jobs that there were in Jerusalem, and there weren't anybody that would want to hire them. They were persecuted. Why would they give you a job when they didn't like you? You were neither Jew nor Greek. You were outside of even that kind of uh, categorizing. And they were then outside of the scope of even the modicum of help that we saw that the poor Jew or even Greek would get at a synagogue or one of the Aranoi. They couldn't go there because Jews wouldn't consider Christians a part of them. And this kind of thought also is prevalent in Israel today. <clears throat> I went to Israel and then um, people told me that the word Christian is spoken to as like a derogative term. It's like, oh, you're a Christian. That's like a bad word. And some people take it as the most terrible thing to happen to a Jew is if someone would call them, like a rabbi would call their mom and say, ma'am, your son is a Christian. And then you could picture the mom on the phone just falling to her knees, covering her face in shame. And so when we were there, we're like, are you a Christian? It's like, well, yeah, but uh, let me tell you about this Jesus guy, right? And so that was probably happening to a certain degree there. So when Paul was sent out and began his ministry, he was commissioned to the Gentiles. And as he was sent out, he was asked to remember the poor, like Paul writes in Galatians 2.10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Because there was a real need, Christians were in a deep state of poverty. You can sense Paul's eagerness to remember the poor. It's right here in chapter 16. He was collecting money for the saints. Which saints? The saints in Jerusalem. It apparently took him many years to fully collect all that money. He would write at the end of the book of Romans that now he's finally getting to go to Jerusalem. And at the, at, toward the end of Acts, in Acts 24, he would say that after many years, he could finally bring alms to his nation. But right now, he's writing to Corinth, asking them to be part of the collection. This is probably something that they've talked about before 
or even asked him to clarify on because this is why the verse starts with now concerning the collection. When he says now concerning, that's a topic that he's usually answering a question that has come to him or something that he was supposed to speak on. And so Paul sets out specific instructions laid out by the principle that we see in God's word. Again, this is important to note because through the instructions, we see some clear theological principles that are laid out for the church to recognize and follow in regard to giving. And so we'll just do a few of these principles today, and we'll finish it off next week. Number one, the purpose of the collection. It was for the saints. Before we get into this, I'm not saying that we are to have nothing to do with people outside of the church or its membership. We are to do good to everyone. It says that specifically in Galatians 6.10. In 6.10 it says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. But then it continues on. And especially to those who are of the household of the, of the faith. Uh, so even the verse that asks us to do good to everyone there is an ordering. You know, it's troubling to think that some would have trouble with this. Taking care of your own needs first is basic. By basic, I mean it's even conventional wisdom that's applied everywhere. On the plane, you're told to put on your mask first before you put it on your child. Why? Because if there's an instance where you need to put on masks and you decide to because you love your kids so much, then even more than your own life, you try to put it on your kid, you both end up dying. This is, this is basic stuff. But people who don't know the basics will continue to challenge this principle. It's basic triage. If you and another soldier gets wounded or injured, you bind yourself up, and then you can go over and bandage your, up your fellow soldier after. Again, I'm reminding you, we're talking about needs. I'm not saying that we can't go on mission trips until we all first get ourselves 85-inch TVs. That is ridiculous. That is not what we are saying. But the principle shown here is that the church's primary responsibility is to fund its own needs. This is so basic, so basic, I'm saddened when I hear people complaining of doing things otherwise. Now that I've said that, notice that it's not only about one local assembly funding its own needs and only its own needs, but it's about one local assembly in Corinth caring for another local assembly, namely in Jerusalem. We are not to just selfishly pour into our own local needs, but to look out for churches where they may have need wherever they are. Right now, we do have brothers and sisters under intense persecution in China, North Korea, and now recently in Afghanistan. And I get that there's no way to really effectively send an aid, but I hope that we never stop praying for them. Because the physical act of giving stems from our spiritual act. The spiritual act supersedes any uh, physical act. This is why we should always pray for our family members in our nation and across the entire world. 
But the spiritual act of covering others will always translate into the physical act. All of our growing in holiness and unity will translate into sharing, and real sharing always comes down to the giving of money. If you say that you love someone and it never translates to you sharing your money, I can very confidently and clearly say you don't love that someone. So what, what's basic is that support goes to the church. Why? Because the church needs it. And when we give, we give cheerfully. We give knowing that it is God who first gave to us. It is because of God who freely gave even his son to us. That's the primary motivator. Look what we've been given. When we deserved it the least, while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. So now, when a Christian has an opportunity to give, imagine the joy and gladness that he or she would give with. It's from the overflow of a grateful heart. And so the Christian is to give and support the local needs of the church. And the sub-point of this is when you support the church, you also support its pastors and staff members. Paul, in other occasions, received money for himself, and he thanks the Philippians for supporting him to his necessity. He had every right to get support, to receive support. This is hearkening back to 1 Corinthians 9. I think I titled that sermon, Pay the Preacher, or something like that. But even though he had every right, he was still thankful and remembered the generosity of the Philippians that supported him when he was in Macedonia. I'll say this again, that this is not my way of asking for more money. I receive bountifully from this church, and I am so thankful for your noble generosity. I really am. But I heard of one elder who paid this preacher so much that the preacher asked, please, why are you giving me so much? To which the elder replied that the pastor would talk so much about stewardship, the elders wanted to watch what he did with it. I love that church. I love that culture of generosity that the Holy Spirit gives through his word that the Holy Spirit and the word fosters. And I'm going to continue on this kind of topic and clarify what I'm saying. It's not only in 1 Corinthians, but it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The word honor just means double pay. In a sense, you have given me that double honor. I get to eat. I get to sleep under a roof. And with what I have been energized to do, I can now give you spiritual food from the Word. And that's the picture. The picture that you see is all this sharing happening. It's truly a picture of the church in Acts 4.32, where the multitude of believers was one in heart and soul, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they owned. See, I don't just read and listen and study to hoard all this information, but to share it as well. God knows if all you're doing is storing in your own barns. And I do believe that these folk that don't give, that are stingy with their money, they really have convinced themselves that they need it. Oh, 
if only I had a, a little bit more, I could do this. So how can I even give up the extra dollar? You know, we're constantly seeing in polls and studies that most people think that they'll be happy if they can only earn just that next level of pay grade. The 35K worker would think, I'd be happy if only I made 45, then I'd be happy. And the person that makes 45 would say to themselves, I'd be really set, I'd be happy if I only made 60. And the person that makes 60K would say, you know what, if only I made 80. And the person that makes 80 would say, if only I could make six figures, then I'd be good. And these days, people will say, six figures is just the beginning. I need to make more. Then I'd be set. They think this way instead of thinking this way. Instead of thinking, wow, I make this much? Imagine what I could invest in. God knows the heart better than you do. Don't convince yourself that you need to store up more for your time here on earth. And I'm not saying don't store up anything here on earth. We do need to. But not only here is the point. And this is, this is why we can sum it up this way. And this is what uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, 9 says. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The point is, invest in the eternal. Don't get hung up on the temporal. And God has shown us the clear way of investing in the eternal. And some might respond by saying, oh, he's just saying, give to the church. Yes, 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 I am actually. I am saying that. It's a clear principle laid out for us in Scripture. We have to give to our own needs. And if you're not a member of this church, I would ask that you go back and give to your own church. This isn't about lining the pocket, our own pockets here at CGS. This is about following the commands of God, knowing and trusting that His ways are good. And if you are a member of this church, then you know that you have not only covenanted to give cheerfully, but that you are responsible for supplying the needs of this church and its leaders. Again, this is basic but while this is basic, it's also something that when we obey, the Lord shows us that we will reap its fruits in heaven. Verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put, up some, put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Second principle here. Paul shows us when we ought to give. What, is, what was normative for the first century church was to meet on Sunday. It had, that been, it, it had been that way since Jesus 
rose again on that day. It's been normative since John chapter 20 and every week thereafter to Acts chapter 20 where Paul would preach on a Sunday and he preached so long that a young man fell asleep and fell down to his death three from three stories up. And then Paul would raise him from the dead. And after he would raise him from the dead, he would go back on teaching. Imagine that. You know, not only the fact that Paul raised someone from the dead because he fell asleep during his sermon, but imagine this guy fell asleep during your sermon, he falls down three stories, you raise him up from the dead again, and then you go back to your sermon. You're like, okay, let's continue. Uh, people stay, that, in that instance, people stay 24 hours just listening to God's word. And we also see that by that time, the apostle John wrote Revelation they were calling Sunday the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. So why give on a Sunday? Why set aside money for this particular day? And that's what setting something aside meant. It wouldn't make sense to tell someone, set something aside on the day Sunday and just keep it in the house. That wouldn't make any sense. So you might ask, I get Sunday gatherings, but why give money then too? Well, Sunday is the day of worship. It's when the saints are gathered locally and around the world. It's the day set aside for the corporate gathering of the saints. The principle is this. How you then handle your money is intricately bound to your heart of worship. Some people have asked me if they have to give every week or if they can just give one big check at the end of the year. Obviously, we can see here that that latter part is not what God wants. The difference is night and day between dealing with your finances once a week or once a year. This is not only wisdom, but the principle shows us that how you handle money is a good indicator of how your spiritual life is. It's both a small thing where God will not give you even people if you cannot handle a few dollars. And it's also a large thing where, listen, Paul gives this warning to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the giving of money is both a small issue and a large issue. And while the giving of money isn't always a good indicator of where you are spiritually, you can say for certain that when you don't give, I know that you are not spiritually in a good place. We need pastors, elders, deacons, and members, all with the ability to handle money well. We need to pray that our pastors especially do not fall because of it. You know the two things that always makes pastors fall? Uh perhaps three, and some pastors have really fallen from great heights. The two, and maybe even three, are number one, money, number two, sex, and number three is pride. And don't you see when a pastor is shaking that the church is shaken as well? So that's why ultimately, ultimately the principle of handling and stewarding our money well, week by week, is what we understand God wants us to deal with stewarding his money constantly. And so you may also ask, but what if you get, what if you don't get paid weekly? 
usually people either here would get paid monthly or semi-monthly. That means every, every two weeks or twice a month. So then what do you do? Do you like spread it out? What if you get paid on commission and get large amounts of income every once in a while? And then what if, what if, what if the list goes on? The point is not to get legalistic about it. It's not that you must absolutely have something every single week in and out. But remember the principle. When you come to the table of God, do not come empty-handed. Come with preparation, something that you have set aside. That could mean every week considering your finances, even if you haven't gotten paid the last two weeks or ever how long. Stewarding isn't simply about mechanically organizing your money. It's about lifting it up to the Lord. If everything is his, and it is, everything that you have received is something then to be grateful for. And stewardship helps you remember that. But using this principle, we only collect offerings during this time. That's why we don't collect offerings during Saturday or Wednesday, but we collect offerings during this time. I get that with online giving, you can technically give whenever you want, but I do not think that's the way. I don't think you should give whenever you want. Faithful stewardship is consistent, and the Bible has laid out for us some clear principles for us to understand and follow and grow in maturity. You see, remember the mundane? Remember I talked about the mundane? I'm going to end with this. The mundane is week in and week out. This has everything to do with our training, our growing and maturing in righteousness and sanctification. You know, mundane is from the word, from the French word mundane, which is actually from the Latin word mundus, which means cosmos in Greek. It means the world. That's where mundane came from. And I wasn't going to do a word etymology with the people there. But mundane comes from the word the cosmos. You do things week in and week out. The promise is that you will be able to conquer the world. And we see this principle not only laid out in the physical world, this wisdom is not only laid out in the physical world, this principle has been given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ who has fully conquered the world because he was completely pure in every single mundane thing that he did while he was on this earth. He was perfect. And so this is also a promise for us to remember the mundane. Don't take it lightly. The small things will turn into great things that God is preparing his church to receive. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. And even though some things are mundane, help us to remember that it is through the mundane you train us, you strengthen us, you prepare us for glory. And so help us to obediently now follow your word in all its precepts and all that it commands us to do. Help us to cheerfully and obediently give and follow Christ in all his ways. Let's take this time to pray.
and let's pray to the Lord. How have I been stewarding? How have you been stewarding with what, what you have been given, especially when it comes to money? Are you investing in the eternal or only on the temporal? It's time to repent and turn back and remember that God has given us an, an opportunity to invest in the eternal, to invest in what is to come. So let's pray and lift up our hearts to God.